This is Building the Independent Economy podcast, the only series made for founders and teams building the companies that enable and empower independent workers. In each episode, I'll interview subject matter experts, founders, and leaders on the front lines building epic businesses. They'll share insights and actionable advice that your team can use to grow your company and win in the independent economy. I'm your host, Trent Bigelow, CEO and co-founder of Abound. Here's today's episode. Tyler Sonnemaker is a reporter for Business Insider covering the gig economy, labor, and workforce issues, and other breaking tech and business news. Tyler, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm a reporter for Insider, formerly known as Business Insider. Um, and like you mentioned, I cover the gig economy, tech and labor workforce issues, um, and just kind of other ways the tech industry is shaping how we you know, work and live together. I'm currently based in Honolulu, Hawaii, but I've lived all over San Francisco, LA, Chicago, DC, um, and I was born and raised in Portland. So I try to come at this with some geographical diversity. I've also worked in the think tank world and then went to journalism school at Northwestern. Awesome. So how did it all start? How did you first end up covering the gig economy? Yeah, so I started as kind of a general assignment reporter on the tech team for Business Insider. So this was in San Francisco, and we were focused you know, mostly on the larger companies, kind of household names, the fang companies, and kind of coming at it from you know, what is the biggest breaking tech news of the day. The nice part about Insider is that they really let you carve out an area of coverage that you're you know, interested in as long as readers are also interested in that as well. So actually at journalism school at Northwestern, I had worked a lot, you know, covering Uber and Lyft, but also Airbnb hosts. And we did this thing, we called it Host HQ, but it was essentially a experimental, you know, media startup where the goal was be really informative, you know, be on top of the kind of, you know, breaking news in that space that would relate to Airbnb hosts specifically, but also kind of provide this, you know, service journalism where we were you know, helping hosts in Chicago, which at the time was going through a lot of kind of complicated regulatory changes and tax changes, um, you know, help hosts navigate that and help connect them with legal resources, things as wide ranging as cleaning services, tax prep services, all these kind of different tools that we thought hosts could you know, benefit from um, and really building a hub for them as a community and, and, you know, coming at this from like a traditional journalistic perspective, but also, you know, just how do we help them become better hosts? So I, I kind of had a background in those types of companies, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, and, and Insider kind of gave me a chance to, you know, give me some runway with that and explore it. And fortunately, that was kind of at a time where these companies were getting more and more attention. You know, we kind of had that first wave of Uber as kind of Travis Kalanick was on his way out and some of these other companies that you know were still I guess, growing really rapidly at the time. And then now we've kind of had the second wave of, you know, what are their other broader impacts on society. So I kind of got in there at a good time and, and really had a lot of support from Insider to start, you know, covering those more extensively. And then that kind of broadened out to, you know, more gig economy companies, broadly speaking, or even ones that are maybe tech companies or even not tech companies, but work in the space where they employ a lot of contractors. So whether that's Amazon delivery drivers, uh, Google temp workers, or just you know, non-traditional companies that in some way are working with that kind of contractor contingent workforce. Wow. That sounds like a real range of a bunch of different types of independent workers. Do you feel like there is one thing that you think kind of unites or is similar to all these workers, or are they just truly, truly different in every way? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, mean, I think going in, I like many people who probably think you know gig economy and they immediately jump to Uber Lyft driver or maybe Airbnb host. That was kind of my, my starting point. But yeah, as you as you talk to more and more of these workers, you realize that 
needs and the backgrounds and the experiences that each of them you know, come to those jobs with can vary so much. Truckers are independent contractors a lot of the time. Healthcare workers, I think it, last time I checked, like the, the largest industry in terms of you know, number of contractors employed is you know industrial. So it's hard to tell. I mean, I think the, the, the biggest thread, as you know, Abound is probably familiar with, is kind of that at times precarity or uncertainty around certain parameters of the job. Um, so whether that's pay, benefits, healthcare, of course, is, is a big one. But it's really hard to say that there's like a common thread in terms of like demographics. I think that's one misnomer that a lot of people think applies with the gig economy, but really income levels, it can range, you know, years of experience in the industry. So it's hard to say that there's one thread, but I think that kind of uncertainty, which can be a positive or a negative, depending on the context, is, is probably the, the most common thread that I've seen. So would you say that there's anything that's really kind of shocked or surprised you? About again, either from the the range of workers, what they're going through, especially when it comes to say financial challenges, or the clients that are paying them, or the platforms that are paying them, or the apps that are serving them. Is there anything? Do you, I don't know if it's a theme or just something that kind of still sticks with you? It's a little bit surprising. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny you asked that previous question because I think the the diversity of these workers is really what stuck out the most to me. There's diversity in, in the you know, kind of demographic sense that we think about, but there's also diversity in kind of this aspirational sense of like what they're hoping to get out of the job. So that, you know, I, I don't want to make any generalizations, but, you know, to give some examples, like you may have a freelance writer who really does thrive in that environment and they like that autonomy from, you know, having a, a specific editor that they work with every single time and kind of like being able to pick up or drop clients as they see fit. You could also have a, a freelance writer who is, is doing that as a stopgap measure between jobs and really wants out of that. So I think, you know, in talking to these different workers, you really see that range of goals that they have for that job. And, and in some cases, it is really a job of necessity. You know, a lot of these, uh, you know, for example, Uber and Lyft, if you're driving 70 plus hours for Uber and Lyft, you may on one hand be this kind of mini entrepreneur that really is hustling as much as they can and they're finding all the hacks to get around the algorithm and get the best rides and really make the most of those hours. And there's some people that just that seemed like the most, you know, economically viable option. So I think that's that's something that surprised me the extent to which that is true really across different industries that employ gig workers. Do you feel like the tone is changing it's like platforms versus workers does that kind of go in cycles is it always us versus them can you tell me more about I, I know a lot of your your research and your writings have to do about kind of at times that adversarial nature between those workers and the platforms that pay them yeah so i mean i think one thing that i try to do with my reporting is so you know i report on these typically household name companies that people are familiar with that oftentimes get lumped together as tech companies or platform companies or gig economy companies. And I think that division is really starting to kind of evaporate. Like you're seeing, you know, just like it did with, with tech companies where is Amazon a tech company? Sure, AWS might be, but if they're getting into healthcare and they're getting into just, you know, traditional logistics, how much is that distinction really important? So when you talk about that kind of adversarial relationship, I mean, I, I tend to think of it more as these different stakeholders and, I would say there's probably nothing new from my you know, take on this that in terms of it being adversarial between those different interests. I mean, at times they're aligned, at times they're competing. I think what seems to be shifting the most in terms of this conversation around the gig economy is really which stakeholders are kind of getting the short end of the stick. And that's against a backdrop of like, you know, so that I'd, I'd map out the stakeholders as like, You've got investors, you've got, you know, higher up employees at the company or executives, you've got 
kind of rank and file workers, you've got these contingent workers, you've got the communities in which they operate in, you've got the environment. So, right. So you have all these different groups that kind of, again, at times can be working towards the same goal. And at times it really is a zero sum game. And I know the tech industry doesn't always like thinking about things in that zero sum framework, but I think a lot of times that is the case. So if you're making, you know, X number of dollars in profit, how do you divide that pie up? It's, It's a finite pie. So I think you know, to your original question about that adversarial relationship, it seems like it's more just a shift in, you know, I think for for so long it's been consumer focused and maybe you know early investor focused. And so Uber and Lyft's early investors have done great from that company. Uber consumers have done great, right? Like we've been paying someone gave the analogy, mm-hmm. it was a, a driver I talked to that said, Hey, they've been selling a you know, five dollar burger for 50 cents for 10 plus years, right? So that's only sustainable for so long. They hope to get those kind of you know monopoly profits. That hasn't necessarily worked out the way they they'd hoped it would. So I think there's starting to be this realization of, okay, maybe these worker groups have been neglected too much, or maybe you know the environment has. You talk about more and more studies saying Uber and Lyft have an adverse impact on the environment, all the congestion, all the, you know, if you have an empty car with, you know, no riders rolling around the block for 30 minutes, that's probably not great. Right. So I'm sure that, you know, this is not the first time that those interests have kind of felt out of whack or out of balance in some way. So I don't think that part's new, but I do think that there's kind of a a growing chorus of people, whether that's, you know, even consumers themselves or regulators or politicians who are saying, okay, we need to probably rebalance the scales in some way. So it's more now about what does that look like to try to rebalance the scales? If you had to make predictions, and I realize you report the news, not make the news, but if you had to make predictions based on what you're seeing so far, when you think of the gig economy, what is one say trend that you think we're going to talk about a year from now? Yeah. I mean, as you pointed out, I, I, I shy away from making, you know, concrete <laughs> predictions, but I, I do think it's a, it's a safe bet that the classification worker classification issue is not going to go away anytime soon. I think it's, I mean, as you saw in California, you had AB5 get rushed through pretty quickly and uh, really a lot of backlash across different industries. And you started having all these carve outs and on face value, you know, the attention of that bill seems really promising. You're saying, hey, there's this kind of second class of workers out there that, um, and, and of course, against the backdrop of most of those workers being people of color that mm. and immigrants that you're saying, okay, it seems like we should probably try to you know, make sure they're getting the same workplace protections that other employees get, especially when they really are doing this kind of as a full-time job in many cases. At the same time, because of the, the kind of political environment in which that bill was passed, you had a lot of industries that said, hey, this doesn't make any sort of sense for our industry. Some of those probably had better claims to you know, back up their, their argument that AB5 shouldn't have included them. And there are some that probably were taking advantage of, of kind of loopholes in labor law for years and now are kind of having this reckoning and really having to figure out what that looks like for their business model. I think that's far from a settled question. So now you're seeing this play out in New York, you're seeing it in Chicago, you're seeing it in Massachusetts, you're seeing you know state attorney generals getting together and saying, all right, we got to, you know, somehow collaborate and get more leverage as we try to deal with these, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that have a lot of resources to pass something like Prop 22. So I, I think it's safe to say that in a year from now, you know, any legal challenge that gets initiated today is still not even going to be decided by next year. So I think there's there's going to be this backdrop of kind of different legal cases that come up and different experiments from regulators. I mean, you're seeing there's a lot more of these kind of state and local county, even, you know, level regulators that are saying, 
hey, we're going to really start going after these companies for wage theft violations or for you know not complying with some sort of state labor law. So whether they're using existing legal frameworks or whether there's going to be a political push for different ways to think about classification, I think there's just going to be a lot of back and forth on that over the next couple of years. From what you've learned covering the gig economy, what advice would you have for those companies that work with or pay those gig workers? Yeah, I mean, I think that totally depends on on what sort of business you're running and where you're situated. You know, like we we sort of talked about earlier that this idea of a gig economy is really nebulous, is really diverse. You've got, you know, service providers, you've got people who are strictly focused on compliance, you've got kind of this evolving idea around portable benefits. You've got so many different places that companies might be plugged in. So with that caveat in mind, I think the first piece of advice would just be talk to gig workers. You know, if you're, I think it's pretty standard in kind of the tech and design world to say, okay, let's start with our user base and, and do research on them and so forth. I think a lot of times that can get glossed over. People try to automate that process or, you know, do it as rapidly as possible. And I have learned a lot about, you know, design thinking and definitely a proponent of it in many cases. But I think a lot of times with gig workers, it really takes time and that really deep qualitative research to figure out what it is that their issue is and whether or not your solution is actually going to help them. And then I think that the other part that, you know, at risk of being too academic on this, I think there's a lot of social scientists that are out there really trying to do important and informative work. Again, kind of that same talking to gig worker process and working backwards from there, but also bringing in their relevant expertise, whether that's you know, looking at the legal frameworks, looking at the technological frameworks, looking at these kind of broader systems that underpin the gig economy and how those intersect with each other. And I think deferring or not necessarily deferring, but at least consulting with those folks can really pay dividends in terms of, okay, you know, I may have really good intentions with designing this product that I think, you know, may make it easier for a gig worker to do X, Y, or Z, but how is that going to you know, interact with all these other kind of complex problems that may require other players, may require other businesses, other government entities, you know, other kind of aspects of society coming together and working collectively on. So I think that those folks often bring a lot of that kind of broader perspective that, you know, startups may not necessarily think to go to right away, but I think they they could really be, you know, useful in, in guiding that, you know, product development. Yeah. I mean, if you could talk about that, where do you think startups you know, and again, in, in your writings and research so far, where do you feel like startups have the most opportunity to help these independent workers or the apps that pay them? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the, there, there's so many different, you know, aspects of the gig economy we could be talking about here. So I think that one dynamic that exists, regardless of where you are in that ecosystem, is that by definition, if you're an independent contractor, you're a contract worker or you, you're some kind of subunit of, of these different workers or companies, right? Like you're facing this kind of information and resource and kind of general power dynamic that you're going, you know, if you're an Uber driver and you're going up against Uber in a debate over whether they, you know, paid you or whether you withheld enough tax, right? You're so under-resourced compared to them. So I think that will continue to be an opportunity in terms of you know, I mean, I think Seattle's a good example where they've kind of set up this driver resolution center where they said, okay, if you get deactivated and you are, you know, convinced that you didn't do anything wrong, you can go to this arbitrator and say, hey, you know, the passenger said that I was smoking weed. I wasn't smoking weed. I have a dash camera to prove it. They go, okay, let's look at the dash camera footage and you know, you're good to go. You're back on the platform. 
So I think, you know, that that's a public sector example, but I think there are going to be a lot of private sector opportunities for that sort of service where you're saying, hey, let's bring a bunch of gig workers together and you're going to have more leverage working with those companies that way. I mean, I think there's definitely a, a value add there that, you know, and also I think from a business perspective makes more sense, right? Like you've got a larger base of people that would potentially be paying for that service. And then on the flip side, I mean, I know this sounds kind of adversarial to the companies, but that would help Uber. That would help Airbnb. I mean, you've seen, I think Airbnb is a good example where this kind of professional hosting world is really taking off. And early on, that kind of seemed like a, a real challenge to its identity, right? Like they said, hey, we're going to, we're a couch sharing company, right? Like you can, you know, rent out a spare room that you have in your house and someone will couch surf on it for a few nights. And so the idea that it's this professionally managed corporate owned property didn't quite sit well with that. But I think on the flip side of that, there's a huge opportunity of, hey, this is actually better for the communities. Those property owners might be, you know, more incentivized to not have a party house and to not run afoul of, you know, neighbors complaining. They may be better at remitting taxes. They may just know that landscape better, especially, you know, if they're working across different states, right? So I think there are some opportunities where, you know, companies can really say, hey, we actually bring some expertise on this and we have worked with so many different workers. You know, again, I'm talking kind of Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, that that kind of traditional idea of gig economy, but this could apply anywhere else. This could apply to truckers who, you know, want more leverage and and getting orders and getting shipments, right? You could talk about, you know, healthcare workers who are kind of deployed in these disparate, you know, environments and stuff. And who do they go to if they need help on something or if they want, you know, to to talk about their working conditions. So I think there's gonna be a lot of opportunity to bring those workers together and then deal with the companies directly. Awesome. It's been fantastic to chat here, Tyler. I'm really looking forward to reading more of your coverage of gig economy and beyond. Where should people follow you and read more? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's been a fascinating conversation. Folks can look at my work on insider.com. And then I also have an author page there so they can search for my name and, and look out for my stories there. Awesome. Great chatting together. It's been fun. Thanks, Trent. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Building the Independent Economy podcast, brought to you by Abound. For access to the latest episodes, links, and more about today's guest, visit our website at withabound.com slash podcast. If you're building tax or benefits features for independent workers, check out Abound, the easiest way to automate contributions for taxes, healthcare, retirement, insurance, and more. Have an amazing day and stay independent.